So what do you do when life throws you a curveball? It can be tough. And even professional baseball players still can't hit that thing. They look goofy sometimes. Uh, sometimes they say the most difficult thing in sports and all of in all of sports, the most difficult discipline is to uh, hit a round ball with a round bat and hit it square. It's just like, how are you supposed to do that? They're both round. How are you supposed to line those things up? So they say that's the most difficult thing to do in all of sports. And uh, I agree. I, I love baseball, but hitting a curveball, you know, when, you, when it comes in straight, that's one thing. But then when it curves, it's another thing. And I remember the best pitcher I've ever faced had just the nastiest curveball, and I looked just like that up, up on the screen. I mean, it was bad. So I got up there. We, we played, uh, it was like when I was in college, and you'd come in the summer with some Legion ball, and so we'd start playing with these guys who were drafted by Major League Baseball. You know, they weren't guys who were going to get to the Major Leagues. That's why they were still playing in this league, but like really good players. So I get up there, and uh, I was never the best hitter, but I thought, you know, I'm just going to make contact. So I, I get up to the plate, and I knew this guy, he had been recruited, he, you know, he played at some college, he probably was going to go to the Orioles or something like that. And I, I stand in there, and his first pitch, it's a curveball. And I did exactly like that, you know, I swung hard and about hit myself in the head, and it's like, where did that go? I didn't even see what happened to that pitch. So I step out, collect myself a little bit, okay, don't look stupid, Ben, just don't look stupid. Get back in there, and, and it's... It, there's a game when you're the batter and the pitcher and you think, what's he going to do next? And for me, I knew he's going to throw me another curveball. I looked so dumb on that first pitch. Why would he not do that again? So this, it's coming. I know it's coming. And sure enough, he throws it, another curveball, and another swing and a miss. I look goofy. I thought, okay, surely he's not going to do it again. He's not going to throw me another curveball He's done it twice. You know, he's probably going to throw. Just, just don't swing, Ben. Just don't swing. It's not going to be in there. And I get up there and curveball right over the middle of the plate. I don't swing and I strike out. It was just frustrating, right? It's just frustrating when that happens. What do you do when life throws you a curveball? Life can feel like a curveball sometimes. You know, a curveball, it looks like a fastball. It looks like it's coming right down there. It looks like, it, you know, it's going to be nice. You can, you can just line that thing up. You can hit it a mile. And then the last second, it dives out of the zone and it curves. And that's what happens in life. You know, some curveballs in life, you, everything's going well and then you lose your job. Curveball. Everything's going well. You got lots of friends and then all of a sudden your friend disowns you. Your friend talks about you behind your back, goes behind your back. Life throws you a curveball. Everything's going well, and then all of a sudden, a loved one gets diagnosed with cancer. And it's just like, what, what do I do? All of a sudden, now I'm in this crisis mode. And today, we're not talking about making poor decisions. Last week, we talked about the poor decisions that Jacob made. But today, we're talking about what happens when you do everything right, and life still throws you a curveball. You still go through a struggle. Your, your, your parents get a divorce. The stock market crashes. Uh, a loved one passes away. What do you do when, it, when it's not your fault? You didn't have anything to do with it, but life gives you this struggle. Life throws you a curveball. And like I said, we're talking about Jacob's struggles. And, and today, you know, last week we talked about how he, he struggled because he messed up. But this week, we're going to look at how he struggled and he didn't even do anything wrong. He didn't seek it out. He didn't deserve it. This was a struggle that came to him. So let me give you a recap, a little quick recap for, for those of you uh, that you need to know the story of Jacob here. So Jacob 
It started with his grandfather, Abraham. Abraham got this promise from God that through uh, his descendants, the whole world was going to be blessed. They'd be as numerous as the stars in the sky and, and, and the sand in, in the world. It, it was going to be great. And he passed this on to his son, Isaac. And Isaac got the same pro- promise from God. And then Isaac, he had twin sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the oldest, so you'd think, all right, it's going to be Abraham and then Isaac, and now Esau is going to inherit this, this promise. But that's not the way God designed it. God, God said the younger is going to get the promise. Jacob's going to get the promise. And so Jacob knew that, and he thought, okay, this is good. But he took it into his own hands, and he said, all right, if I'm going to get that promise, then I'm going to have to take it. See, Jacob's name, name meant deceiver or liar. And so he uh, lived up to that promise, and he deceived his brother. And, and he stole the birthright from his brother. He deceived his father, and he stole his father's blessing. And then all of a sudden, now he was facing death because of what he had done. The Bible said there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And literally Jacob faced that. He had stolen these things and now his brother was upset that he had stolen all this stuff from him. Esau was upset and he was a skilled hunter and he said, I'm going to go and destroy my brother. I'm going to go kill him. He's going to become my prey. So Jacob was on the run. Jacob was at the end of his line, at the end of his rope. He had hit rock bottom. And while he was running, Away, he comes to this town called Bethel. In the middle of the night, he has this vision. And finally, in rock bottom, uh, he sees God, and God passes down this promise to him. This promise that through him, the whole world is going to be blessed. That he's going to have all of these descendants and his grace. Something he had been looking for his whole life. He had tried to deceive his way. He had tried to steal. He had tried to take it. But finally, when he allowed God, and he, he just finally listened to God's plan. And he slowed down long enough to say, all right, God, I want to do it your way. My way is leading to death here. God gives him this promise. And finally, he's on the right track. And this is where we pick up the story of Jacob today. His struggle is over. Everything's going well now. He's finally said, I'm not going to live for my own purpose anymore. I'm not going to do my own plan. But God, I'm going to live for you. And it's going to be good. And he's got this incredible promise. And and things are starting to look up. So he goes back to the land of his ancestors. He, he goes back to, to visit his family where his grandfather grew up. And he comes to the area and he sees some shepherds standing by. And so he asks them, you know, hey, am I in the right spot? Because this was before they had, you know, Google Maps or GPS or MapQuest or anything like that. And, and so he's like, hey, am I in the right spot? Am I in the land of my ancestors? And they said, yeah, you're in the right place. And so he starts talking with them and saw these shepherds gathering around and they said, yeah, we're just waiting for all the shepherds to come in because we've got a well here and, and we like watering all the flocks at the same time. It's a big stone that you got to move to get the well off and uh, get to the water. So we need all hands on deck to kind of, to move that stone. And so while they're, while they're talking there and having this little conversation, all of a sudden it turns into a scene like straight out of a movie, right? Jacob's talking to these guys and this lovely girl walks in. And it doesn't say this in the Bible, but just bear with me. You, you can picture it. You know, the music starts playing, and you just, they lock eyes from, from, a, from across the way, and then everything goes into slow motion. You know, you can hear Jacob's heart start beating a little faster. And, and it's just, this is incredible. He's in God's will, and all of a sudden, the love of his life walks in. The, the shepherdess named Rachel. And we pick it up in Genesis chapter 29, got your Bibles, Genesis chapter 29, 
is, is where we'll find the story today. And uh, we are going to start with, with verse 9. We'll be looking at it all throughout the day. So in Genesis 29, verse 9, it says this, While Jacob was still speaking with them, the shepherds, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock. Now, in this passage, it doesn't actually say how Rachel felt about Jacob. You know, maybe she's just like, who is this guy? But Jacob, we know, was just in love with Rachel. He liked uh, what he saw and he, he needed a wife. So he does what, what any sensible man would do who's head over heels in love. He decides to prove his love for her by doing a feat of strength. Right? That's how we do it. Just, just a feat of strength. See, typically it took multiple shepherds to move this rock over the well, but Jacob was so overcome by love that he pretty much says to Rachel, hey, Rachel, check this out. I'm going to move this rock all by myself. You know, and he does this incredible feat of strength. Is it, guys, isn't that what we still do today? I mean, isn't that the truth? Like, <laughs> hey, girls, look at me. I'm carrying eight chairs, right? That, that goes on in, in the fellowship hall and all that stuff. That's, that's the way that real Christian men find women. They do feats of strength. And just a, rem- a reminder, guys, tomorrow's Valentine's Day, right? We're all ready. We're prepared. Maybe your heart just skipped a beat like, oh. I got to do that. So tomorrow's Valentine's Day. If you haven't gotten anything for your wife, the best thing you can do is just go find something heavy, pick it up, and say, look, look, honey, this is how much I love you. Better yet, she might be more impressed if you just, like, picked up the garage or picked up your dirty socks off the floor. And that, that might be the best uh, gift you could give her is just that, that feat of strength. But this is what Jacob does for Rachel. He, he shows her this, like, I love you this much. You know, he takes this big rock and rolls it away. And as a youth pastor, uh, there's a question I don't think I was prepared to get as a youth pastor, but I got it so many times over the years from teenagers and from young adults. And the question was, how do I find the right guy? How do I find the right girl? How do I know that, that they're the one? And I'm thinking, I signed up to be a pastor, not like a love guru. But I better come up with, with a good answer for this. So number one, so this, this was my advice. Number one, you're too young. Like your parents don't want you dating until you're at least 30. So that was, that was my standard answer. But then when they didn't take that one, uh, this, this was, this was the, the answer I would come to. And I think it's what we see in Jacob's case here is seek God first and he's going to bring the right person to you. Seek God first. Seek his kingdom first and all these things will be added to you as well. Put God at the top priority because that's the number one requirement that you're looking for in that that spouse and that person is, number one, do you serve Jesus? That should be the very first question that you ask that potential. So all the single people in here, if you're looking for that that, that soulmate today, that that spouse, uh, number one question, do you love Jesus? Tell me about your relationship with Christ. And if the answer is no, that's not the person for you. Or at least that's not the person for you yet. God's got more work to do on them before that answer. So we need to find that. We need to find that right person. So that's why the best place, if you're looking for that today, how do I find a husband? How do I find a wife like Jacob did? The best place to find that person is, is not online. It's, it's not at some get-together. It's, it's right here at the altar. 
This is the best place that you can find a person because you want to find somebody who's ready for you and you want to be ready for that person. And plus, you're getting married at the altar anyways. You might as well familiarize yourself with this space. So my best dating advice if you're single, just respond to the altar every single week. Just come to the altar and God's going to do some incredible things. And, and that's, what, that's what Jacob found here, right? Jacob, he's finally in God's will. He spent over half of his life trying to live for himself, trying to do it his own way. And now finally he comes and says, all right, God, I'm yours. God, I want your promise. I want what you have for me. This is going to be good. And he walks in and it's not a short time later and he meets the perfect girl, right? Isn't that funny how God lines those things up? Once we get our priorities straight, he says, okay, now you're ready for what's next. You're ready for what's next. So Jacob, he sticks around for a month. He gets to know the family. He gets to know uh, Rachel's dad. He gets to know uh, her mom. He gets to know her older sister, Leah. And then finally comes the time he decides, all right, I'm going to ask the big question. And so in verse 18, we see Jacob uh, pop the question. It says, Jacob loved Rachel. And he said to Rachel's father, Laban, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Isn't that romantic? Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they, served it, uh, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. So a couple observations here out of this passage. I mean, what a conversation Jacob had with her dad. You know, he, he said, I love your daughter so much that I'm going to be willing to work for you for seven years. Like, I'm going to give you seven years of my life just so I can have the honor and the privilege of marrying your daughter, Rachel. Today, we don't, we don't say things like that, right? If the guy is man enough to go ask the father-in-law, right? That's a big if. The conversation isn't, here's what I want to do for you in exchange for your daughter. The conversation is, can I marry your daughter? And the next question is, will you pay for the wedding? You know, now it's like reverse, He's like, wait a minute, we don't get anything out of this deal anymore? Uh, so it's flipped, but Jacob, he's doing it right. He's a class act. He, he says, I love your daughter so much, I'm going to serve you, and I, I don't care how long it is. And it said to him that those seven years just seemed like a few days. I mean, this man was in love. He, was, he, was, he would do anything, right? Remember when you were young and in love, and you just, it's just like, oh, yeah, I could do anything. I'll do anything for you. Finally, there is no struggle in Jacob's life. He's not on the run anymore. He's not worried about trying to get something or do something. He's just trying to follow God's will. He's living his purpose. His priorities are straight, and it feels like God is blessing him in these seven years. They went by in a snap, in an instant. Well, the wedding day comes, this moment that Jacob's been waiting for for these seven years, and he's put everything he's had into today or into this day. And, and unfortunately, back then, it's not your traditional wedding that we see today. I mean, there was no here comes the bride. There was no uh, ring bearer or flower girl. There, uh, you know, there's no special music probably. Uh, but one tradition they did have was the bride would wear a veil. But not like lace that you could kind of see. This was just, you couldn't see the bride at all. And so they go through with whatever the wedding ceremony was at that time, and, and uh, they get back to the, the honeymoon suite, and unfortunately for Jacob, uh, it was nighttime, and electricity didn't come on the scene for another 3,800 years, and uh, he got into a little bit of a pickle. You see in verse 25, it says this, when morning came, there was Leah. 
It wasn't Rachel, it was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? I mean, that's got to be a shock. You marry somebody, you work for seven years, and you wake up the next morning and realize they gave you the wrong one. They gave you the older sister and not the younger sister. Jacob had worked faithfully for seven years, and his father-in-law Laban switched sisters on him and tricked him and deceived him. There was no going back. There was no refund or exchange policies on marriages. And Jacob was now married to Rachel's older sister, Leah. At this point, Jacob had to be asking, why? Why, God? Why, why did this happen to me? I finally felt like I had everything figured out. I, I'm in your will. I'm doing it right. God, why did this happen to me? God, why would just such evil like this happen on me? Have you ever asked that question before? God, why do bad things happen? God, I was doing everything right. And a lot of people will try to answer your question of, you know, why, why do bad things happen to, to good people? You know, and so maybe Jacob asked his friends and some of the things they could have told them, well, Jacob, it's a taste of your own medicine. You deserved it. Remember, Jacob means deceiver. It means liar. Remember when you deceived your, your older brother into giving you the birthright? Remember when you deceived your father into giving you the blessing. Remember all that? Payback. It's karma. You, you deserved it, Jacob. You know, you switched the younger and the older, and now Laban switched the, the older and the younger. The deceiver got deceived. Another thing people might say is, well, Jacob, you should have known better. You should have read the fine print on that marriage before you signed that contract. Uh, don't you know? Verse 26, Laban tells him, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Fine print. In that culture, Jacob, you should have known better. The older daughter needs to get married first before the younger daughter. You, you should have studied up. You should have read up on that. Or maybe somebody could tell him, well, maybe God's just trying to teach you a lesson, Jacob. Like, you, you needed this in your life. Nobody wants to hear that when you're going through a tough time. You just, God's got a lesson for you. You've got to learn. Clearly, you've done something wrong. He needs to teach you. Or maybe they told him, well, it's because your father-in-law, he's just a bad guy. You know, that's, that's why this happened. You know, Laban's just not a good guy. And, and, and so all these excuses that we can come up with for, for why this happened. Most of the time, we can come to the grips with things that we mess up ourselves. We can understand like, okay, I'm just paying consequences because I made a dumb decision. But how do we come to grips with something that was not our fault? This wasn't Jacob's fault. He didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve it. I just saw that, in fact, just this week, just this week, I, we've got some friends and uh, good people, solid people, love Jesus with all their hearts, serving constantly. Every chance they get, they're there. And uh, they've been going through some struggles, and, and their, their daughter was sick, and they thought, you know, maybe it's COVID, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. And they found out this week, no, it's cancer. And now you're going to be spending a lot of time in the hospital and uh, in the children's hospital. It's like, God, why? These are good people. They love you. God, why would you let them? Why would you allow them to go through these, these difficult times? Right now they're in this battle. They're in this struggle literally for their daughter's life. Why do bad things happen to good people? And again, this is the, the question that Jacob's facing here. See, you never know in life when a curveball's coming. You never know in life when, when a curveball's coming. Good pitch, it's coming in. 
looks great, looks like you can hit it, and then all of a sudden it changes different directions at the last second. We don't know the future. We don't know what's going to happen in a week. We don't know what's going to happen in an hour. All these curveballs we face in life, maybe, maybe you're there again. You lose your job. You have to rush to the ER. You know, the proposal at work that you turn in doesn't get approved. Your car dies. You know, some of you right now, you may be completely comfortable, but the reality of life is that before you go home today, you could be in crisis mode. We just never know when a crisis is coming. That's the nature of a curveball. It catches us unexpected. So again, Jacob, he's doing everything right, but he's come to this question, why do bad things happen to good people? And I want to try answering that question the best that I can today. First off, I don't have the answer. I, I can't tell you exactly why bad things happen to good people. But let's look at Scripture for just a little bit, and maybe I can give you a few things to help you understand. Because we've all gone through those situations. We've all seen that. Or at least we're going to go through bad situations because it happens to everybody. So the first thing I would say is this. Some struggles, they're just literally, they're not our fault. We live in a fallen world. We live in a sinful world. From the moment that Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and sin entered the world, there has always been pain and suffering. Always, good and bad. And you look at the first two brothers, Cain and Abel, right? Abel comes and he brings the best sacrifice. He brings uh, the, the first of his, of his animals and he brings it there. He brings a good sac- sacrifice to God and it's acceptable. But Cain, his brother, is jealous of him. And so he goes and he murders Abel. And he kills him. It's just like, what? God, why? Abel did everything right. And it's literally because he did everything right, that's why he died. It doesn't make any sense, God. But we live in a fallen world. Jesus said in Matthew that, that God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Right? The sun comes up every morning just as much for good people as it does for bad people. It rains just as much on the just people in this world as it does the unjust. Like God doesn't change that. We all are living in the same world. We live in a fallen world. The second thing I'd say is this, that following Jesus does not stop all bad things from happening. Following Jesus doesn't stop all bad things from happening. Now, it prevents a lot of struggles in your life, but it doesn't change the fact that, like number one says, that we live in a fallen world. John 16, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. He's telling that to his disciples. You will have trouble. You will face adversity. Following Jesus does not guarantee that you're going to live a pain-free life, but it does promise a perfect eternity, right? You're going to have a painful life, but we're going to have a pain-free, perfect eternity. That's why we follow Jesus. See, Jesus He didn't stop there. He didn't just say, in this world you will have trouble. But he says this, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. That leads me into the third point is, no matter what curveball life throws at you, Jesus will be with you through the pain. And Jesus is an overcomer. He's experienced your pain. He's overcome the struggle. And he's going to help you overcome the struggle that you're facing. See, no matter what pain that you've been through, Jesus has been through that pain. He's been through that pain. He's been through the physical pain of dying on the cross. I mean, I can't imagine the pain that he went through, the suffering that he went through as he was tortured, as he was beaten and died uh, on that torture device on the cross. 
He's been through the emotional pain of a, of a friend turning on him, of being abandoned by his closest friends, of the disciples. When he went to the cross, only one stuck by his side. The rest of them deserted him. He's been through the shame of a, an entire city crying out, crucify him. Can you imagine that? Sometimes I don't think we, we think about it. Can you imagine? Put yourself in Jesus' shoes for a second. You know, the beginning of the week, the whole city's crying out, Hosanna, like we sang earlier. By the end of the week, the whole city's crying out, crucify him. To be put on that sort of a public stage and humiliated like that, I can't imagine the pain that, that Jesus went through. He went through the spiritual pain of, of sin when he took all the sin upon him, uh, all the sin of the world on him when he died on the cross. He, he went through temptation. He was tempted by the devil himself. After 40 days of fasting, in a weak moment, the devil came and tempted him. But, but Jesus overcame temptation. He's overcome. See, Jesus didn't stay in his grave, but he rose on the third day and he overcame sin and he overcame death. And because of that, we can overcome sin. We can overcome death, not through our own power, but through the power of Jesus. So when we go through our pain, when we go through our struggles, when we go through difficult things, we can trust that God is going to be there with us that he's going to be our, by our side. So I, I can't tell you why exactly it happens, but I can tell you this, that Jesus will be there with you and Jesus understands the pain that you're going through. In Matthew chapter 28, one of the last things that he says to his disciples, he says, and surely I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He'll always be with us. He won't forsake us. The fourth thing is this. Why do bad things happen to good people? We grow through our struggles. We grow through our struggles. You know, there's no professional baseball player out there today who got to the major leagues without having to face a curveball. They, they had to go through difficult things. There's no CEO out there who never had to face criticism or work on a tight budget or settle disputes between employees. They, they didn't get there just overnight. There's, there's no doctor today that didn't have to pass test after test after test and go to year after year of school. There's no person in here today whose mom didn't have to go through the pain of childbirth so that you could have life, right? There's no hero of the faith in this Bible uh, that had an easy life. It's not easy to do, but if we want to grow, we got to stop viewing pain. We got to stop viewing our struggles uh, as bad things, and we need to start viewing them as opportunities. We need to change our perspective. Paul writes in Romans that we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. We don't view them as pain. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, our struggles make us stronger. Our struggles make us stronger. And worship team, you can hold for, for just a minute here. Our struggles make us stronger. Let's, let's shift it from, from why God to God, what are you teaching me? What are you teaching me, God? Let, let's shift the, the perspective there. See, even in the worst of circumstances, here's the, fifth, here's the fifth thing. We know this, God is in control. God is in control. I know that he sees the bigger picture and he can turn tragedy into triumph. He does it time and time again. See, in all things, the Bible says in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Fast forward the, the marriage of 
Jacob and Leah, right? Seemed like a bad thing. Seemed like a terrible thing. It seemed like, God, why? Why are you telling me this? Or why, why did you do this to me? But it's through this marriage of Jacob and Leah, they have six kids. And, and in that line, we see uh, Moses and Aaron come out of that. We see the deliverer who freed uh, their, the people of Israel out of slavery. We see uh, through this, this marriage, we see through these kids, King David and King Solomon come. Some of the greatest kings to ever walk the planet. Some of the wisest kings to ever walk the planet. And ultimately, we see through this marriage, we see Jesus come down many generations later. See, God can take your tragedy and he can turn it into triumph. In baseball, there's a common mistake when, when you get up to the plate, you try to pull the ball and, and there's a curveball coming and it's changed the place, but you try to stick with your original plan and you swing as hard as you can and nine times out of 10, you look like those people uh, you know, that we saw earlier and you just fall into the ground and do all those things. And, but if we want to hit a curveball, let me tell you, there's a few things that we need to do, all right? This applies in baseball and in life. And the first one is this, when you see a curveball coming, got to be patient. Got to be patient because that ball's coming in a little slower than a fastball would. And a lot of people, they're goofy and they start swinging early and they start doing goofy things because they're not, they're not ready for it. So when life throws you a curveball, you got to be patient. You just got to sit back and wait on it and see what's, what's going to happen here. Because we can get so out of work, like, oh man, everything's going wrong, and, and I don't know what to do, and I, I, can't, I can't handle this, and I need to do this, and I need to do this, and we can get so ahead of ourselves, and we can, we can, we can try to do everything on our own, and, and God's just telling us, just, just wait. I got this. Just, just be patient. I'm not surprised by this. You know, God has never been, we, we're surprised by curveballs, but a curveball's never caught God off guard. Think about that. God has never been up in heaven panicking like, I don't know, what do we do? How are we going to handle it? No. He knew it was coming. And so we need to trust him. We just got to be patient. The second thing that, that people tend to do when a curveball is coming is they get out of the way. <laughs> right? They get out of the way. Because that curveball, sometimes it can look like it's coming right for your head. And, and so you step out of the batter's box like, nope, not today. I am not going to swing at that pitch. And it curves right over into the strike zone. It's like, oh, man, come on. And in life, we can tend to do that. When life throws us a curveball, we can say, forget this. I'm backing up. I didn't sign up for this. And we run back. Like we run back to that addiction. We run back to that bad relationship. We run back to that habit that we know is not helping us. Because we say, I'm, I'm not going to deal with this. Like I can't handle life right now. Like this is, this is too much. I'm bowing out. I'm not going to do it. But if we want to hit the curveballs that life throw at us, we got to stay in the batter's box. We got to lean into it. We got to accept, all right, this is life. And I'm going to make the most out of this opportunity. Clearly, God's going to try to teach me something out of this. And the last thing with a curveball is that a lot of times, again, we, we try to pull it. We, we try to take it right down and, and put it right where we want to, but the pitch is diving out of the zone. And, and so one of the things in life, when life throws us a curveball, it might change our plans. We may not have to be able to stick with plan A. We may have to go with it. We may have to say, all right, I was going to do this, but now I'm going to have to reach out a little bit and maybe go the other way with it. We need to do that in life. We need to be willing to adjust and realize that, all right, God, maybe my plan isn't the plan you've got. So God, what do you have for me? God, where do you want me to take this thing? God, where do you want me to, to go with it? 
when life throws you a curveball, we need to be ready to trust in God and do what he wants us to do because God can still make good things come out of bad situations. He can turn tragedy into triumph. And this is what Jacob's facing right now in this moment, this tragedy. It's Leah. It's not Rachel. What do I do? Right? We haven't finished his story. So how does he respond? Does he back out of the box? Does he try to do his own thing? Or does he go with the pitch? Does he stick? Does he go with God's plan or does he go back to his own plan? So we see in verse 27, Jacob confronts Laban, his father-in-law, about what's, uh, why he tricked him and, and, and why he did that with Leah. And Laban tells him this, complete the week with this one. So complete the week with Leah and we will give you uh, Rachel also in return for serving me another seven years. And it said this, Jacob decided to go with his own plan here. Jacob did so, and he completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. So Jacob does something that seems right at the time, right? He worked for Rachel. He loved Rachel, but he didn't give Rachel. And and so he says, all right, if I have to have Leah, then I might as well have both. But he would realize that this decision would only lead to greater struggles in his life. It would, it would lead to, to heartache. It would lead to pain. And then it throws this little nugget in in the middle of verse 30. It says that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And uh, I think a key here is, guys, don't have a favorite wife. That just, <laughs> it doesn't work. No. If you have a favorite wife, make sure it's your only wife. All right? Don't have multiple wives. This is a poor decision. God didn't design marriage to be between a husband and a wife and a wife. He designed marriage between a husband and a wife. And so Jacob says, you know what? I'm just going to make it my own thing. I'm, I'm just going to stick with my original plan and, and marry Rachel. But the problem with this and the reason why it led to struggles is because two wrongs don't make a right. Two wrongs don't make a right. I was listening to a missionary once and... And she was sharing this story. And just with with tears in her eyes, she was sharing this story of a young woman who loved Jesus and went to church. And she was a young single lady and and she loved Jesus, right? She was doing everything. She was serving. She was doing all this stuff. But then one day, she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Wasn't her own fault. But all of a sudden, a man came and, and, uh, and abused her. And not only that, he violated her. And it, he assaulted her. And she was left emotionally broken. And physic, or spiritually broken. She was left physically abused. And she was also left pregnant. This was difficult. Can you imagine that? So many questions started going through her mind of, what do I do? I can't hide this. What's my family going to say? What are the people at the church going to say? How, how am I going to look on this child and not see anything but pain and heartache and, and think about that night when I was in the wrong place at the wrong time? She didn't do anything wrong. She didn't do anything wrong. God, how could you do this? Why would you do this to my family? Why would you do this to me? How am I going to tell people? Like, this is something that I want to keep private. That I don't want to have to tell people, but... 
everybody's going to notice. Everybody's going to be able to see a child. And so she struggled with the question of, do I just get an abortion? Do I just take this child's life? And this young woman decided that even though she was wronged, that she was not going to fix a wrong with a wrong. She refused to take this child's life, and she went through with her pregnancy. 1 Peter chapter 3 says this, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. See, when you choose to not repay evil for evil, when you choose not to get revenge, but you choose to bless, that's when God blesses you. And that's when God can turn tragedy into triumph. And the missionary went on to share the rest of the story, again with tears in her eyes. She, she had never really shared this story before. But she said, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that for that young lady's decision because that young lady was her mom. And that child was her. And she got to live her life because her mom said, I'm not going to repay a wrong for a wrong. And she, she was raised up, and God called her, and God used her, and God spoke to her identity, and now she's on the missions field. Like, it was just so amazing to see how God can take this tragedy, this difficult situation, and can turn it into a triumph. Now, some of you are thinking, it's like, man, that just doesn't, God, why would you do that still? Like, what about that guy who, you know, was a terrible person? You know, sometimes we, we can think of just like, well, where's the justice in all of this, God? Where, where's the justice in all of this? Can I share one of my favorite verses with you? Would that be all right? You know, some people have favorite verses like, you know, for God so loved the world, or God will give you the desires of your heart, or God's working all things out for, for good, or I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, or my grace is sufficient for you. And those are nice. You know, there's nothing wrong with having verses like, those are great verses. But sometimes life is hard and it keeps throwing you curveballs. And, and sometimes people are the worst, right? You ever been there? And sometimes it's just like, God, I don't need just your love. I want to hear about your justice today. So let me, let me share one of my favorite verses with you. It's out of Romans chapter 12. It says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And here it is. Here's my favorite verse, or one of them. It says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Here's the best part. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Man, there's just something about hearing God sticking it to our enemies that just makes you feel all warm and toasty on the inside, doesn't it? I don't know. That's, that's just the way I feel some days. But it's interesting how God tells us, yeah, you've been wronged. Yeah, you're going to go through hard situations. Yeah, there's evil in this world. But don't respond evil with evil. I'll take care of it. I've got this. And just knowing that, that God can handle justice a lot better than I can. God is perfect and he is just. And vengeance is not mine. It's God's. God can do a lot worse to somebody who's given me a hard time than I can do to him. God, that's, that's crazy. You're going to heap burning coals on their head. You know, not, not literally, but he's going to put the pressure where it needs to go. And, and guess what? When they go through that struggle, hopefully they turn to Jesus. And hopefully they realize that they need a Savior too. 
We're all in the same boat. Being submissive is hard. Blessing those who hurt us is hard. Not getting revenge, it's difficult. But we need to realize God's in control and God's going to take care of it. Revenge is His. And we just need to lean into God and allow Him to help us to hit these curveballs that life throws our way. I want to leave you with just one, one story. When Luke was, Luke's our oldest, when he was a few years old, my favorite sport is baseball, and I wanted to pass that down to my son. But all he was interested in was like cars. It's like, come on, I want you to be athletic. I want, I want to teach you. And most days I'd look out the window across our street in the front yard. Uh, we had a neighbor kid who was just a couple years older than him, and his dad would be throwing him pitches all day. And I mean, this kid, he was killing it. I mean, every time he was hitting that ball square. I mean, the ball was going a mile. And it's just like, can we trade kids? Like, is, can we do something like that? And so it's like, okay, Luke, I, I got to teach you this. So I took him to the backyard because I, I didn't want them to see this work in progress here, you know. We'll come up to the front yard when, when you got that swing straight. Now I took him to the backyard. You know, I give him the bat or like put it on the tee. I was like, okay, hit the ball. All right. been there, you know, and just swinging into the ground. No, no, that's not how you do it. So I try to try to coach him. I try to tell him, all right, you know, put your elbow up. No, not that elbow, the other one. No, put the other one down. Okay, now, now lift your bat up. Okay, now face me. No, not like that. Move your, you know, and you're trying to do all these things. It's just like, it's frustrating. All these verbal commands of trying to tell your kid how to have the right form and do the right thing. And finally, it's like, okay, this, this isn't the way that I need to teach you. So I came over to him and I wrapped my arms around him, right? And, you know, I got the knees in the right place. I got his head looking in the right direction. I got his, his elbow up and I wrapped my arms around him. And he still didn't like that, you know? He was still struggling. He was, he was still doing all these things. I'm like, oh, dad, you know, why do you got to just... And, and finally, finally, after a while, he, he let me help him. And you put it around there and, and you lined it up and together we hit that ball. And that's kind of the way it works in the kingdom of God. We don't have the skills to hit those curveballs. We're going to swing and miss every time. But the best place that we can be, the best place we can learn how to hit a curveball is in the arms of the Father. And we can push her and we can say, God, no, I don't want to do it your way. I don't don't want it. This This is a struggle. But when we finally say, all right, God, show me the right form. Show me how to swing. Show me how... Show me how to hit that curveball in life. Because God, this is difficult. And we run to the arms of the Father and, and, he, and He shows us the way. Watch Him turn tragedy into triumph. Watch you hit that curveball out of the park. You didn't think it was going to go this way. But man, God's plan was just so much better. And you're growing through it and you're learning from it. So today as we close... I want to call you to the altar today. If life's throwing you a curveball, run to the arms of the Father today and just ask Him, God, how how do I do this? How do I do this? How do I adjust? What's right? You know, when curveballs come, there's a lot of gray areas. It's just what's, what's right and what's wrong. Run to the Father. Have Him wrap His arms around you. Show you the right way to handle each and every situation. He's got the answers. 
We just got to be willing to listen. We got to be willing to ask the right questions. So today, again, I just want to call you to the altar. If there's, if God's bringing you through something, you don't have the answer. Today, you can find the answer in His presence, at His feet. Of just saying, God, yes, I want it Your way. I want it. I know the struggle is difficult, but God, I want it Your way. So would you stand with me? I'm going to pray. We're going to take some time to to just sing and lift up the name of Jesus. Today, if you've never served Jesus, if you've never followed Jesus, today can be your day. I encourage you, come to this altar. Come catch me at this altar. And I want to pray with you. I want to give you some resources. I I want to encourage you because God can do the most incredible thing in your life. But today, if, if you're going through a struggle, if you're going through a difficult time, come to this altar. There'll be people here to pray with you and, and believe with you. And let's go after Jesus together. Jesus, we need your help. God, the struggle is real some days. The struggle is difficult. We may not have deserved it, but, but God, it keeps coming our way day after day. So Lord, teach us to hit this curveball. God, teach us... Uh, to transform, uh, God, transform our lives. We don't want to do it our own way anymore, God. We want to do it your way. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go to Jesus.